0: Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay pay-to-troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Succinize and do their lies and make a fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig. One of the themes that we've explored many times at TechTurt over the years is some of the oddities, both good and bad, that happen when things that used to be in the physical realm move to the digital realm. There are fundamental differences, of course, when something is physical and scarce as compared to when they're digital and somewhat infinitely copyable. Of course, for business models that have been built up specifically around the physical scarce world, things can get really kind of tricky when they move to the digital world. Uh, What tends to happen is that people then try to force fit some sort of restrictions uh, on the digital world that make it seem more like the physical product, with the most obvious example of this, of course, being DRM systems used to lock up and limit digital goods to stop you from copying them. But because digital and physical really are so different, uh, once you do something like put a digital lock on on a digital file, it's not really replicating the the same physical constraints, but doing much, much more. In the physical world, for example, if I buy a book or a DVD, I can share it with others or I can resell it. This is kind of fundamental to, to the concept of ownership. I bought the book i own it i can do what i want with it including sharing it or selling it or writing on it or burning it i guess if i wanted to in the digital world we don't really have that ability Uh, and that actually raises a whole lot of questions from a variety of different angles and it comes up in the strangest of ways Uh, you may recall a few years ago that people who thought that they had bought an ebook of george orwell's 1984 woke up to discover that uh, it had been deleted by amazon and there are a whole bunch of other examples like that many of which we've written about Uh, law professors aaron Przanowski and jason schultz have both been thinking about this for quite a while, and they recently turned their thinking into an excellent book called The End of Ownership, uh, which zeroes in on this issue as we've moved more and more into the digital realm in which everything is licensed rather than owned, even if people don't appreciate what that difference means. Uh, It creates lots of questions and challenges that most people haven't yet begun to consider and that they really need to start thinking about. So on today's podcast, we've got both of the authors, Aaron and Jason. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. Great to uh, be talking to you today.
2: Yeah, nice to be here.
0: Uh, and so, so people recognize the first voice was Aaron's and the second was Jason's. Um, and uh, let's start with sort of the obvious question, which was, you know, what was your inspiration in, in terms of deciding to write this book?
1: So the, the book is kind of an extension of a lot of academic writing that Jason and I have been doing now for the past I don't know, eight or nine years, I suppose, and we we wrote this series of law review articles that started focusing on this idea of of digital for sale or digital exhaustion, the idea that that consumers should be able uh, to alienate to sell or give away or lend their digital media in, in much the same way, although not identically in much the same way that they can a traditional uh, physical book or a, a CD or uh, a DVD, something along those lines. And what we started to notice as we continued working in this space was that all of the, all the stuff that we were writing was kind of circling around this one kind of core question, which is, what does it mean to own something in the digital economy? And that's not just a question that touches on digital media Uh, But it goes to, you know, our electronic devices, all of the kind of connected software-enabled products that we all use on a daily basis. And we saw that there were some kind of common themes in terms of the legal and technological and kind of cultural and marketplace shifts that um, call into question the status of individual uh, consumers as owners in the digital economy and how... Um, the rights that we associate with ownership are uh, being kind of eroded and undermined in a way that is at the same time pervasive but also has gone, I think, largely unnoticed by consumers as a whole.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you can think of this as a copyright creep kind of story that we're trying to tell, um, where, you know, the kind of copyright problems that we talk about have existed in music and movies in the digital space, and then to, as Aaron said, hardware, software, hardware, and then now everyday objects, because there's software in everything, right? It's all over, and it's eating the world. Um, and that we'd see these outrage stories, consumers would be outraged in individual spaces, right? You know, farmers who are upset because they couldn't repair their tractors, uh, you know, uh, coffee addicts who couldn't put their special favorite coffee in their coffee maker, Um, you know, Barbie doll collectors who, you know, were outraged because Mattel was eavesdropping on them. And it's like all these kinds of different stories. But there wasn't really any book that we saw that was pulling together the kind of bigger picture sort of system analysis of what was really going on across all these different technologies and how copyright and the copyright creep story was kind of playing a role in quietly removing the kind of consumer protection and... You know, makers' rights kind of uh, mm-hmm. ownership that we'd always had.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's part of what makes it so interesting to me is like, you know, um, you know, we've always seen these issues with sort of direct digital files, but you know, I started to get a sense a few years ago that it felt like all of a sudden the the things that we were concerned about with DRM suddenly, like people in other industries were like oh wait, that could be a feature, not a bug. If we can figure out a way to sort of make our products have you know, restrictions along the lines of DRM, that's that's a really neat potential for our business model, even if it sucks for the consumer.
2: Well, and we think, I think we've seen this um, also at the Copyright Office, right? So a number of us who follow these proceedings every three years where people petition the Copyright Office to be able to, quote unquote, circumvent technological restrictions on you know yeah we were fighting over dvds and backing up files and archival things and we, you know trying to traditional media questions and then suddenly you know it's vehicles and it's pacemakers <laughs> and it's you know it's iphones it's everything and the copyright office is the agency that has to sort of decide the, the future of ownership in this context and it's very strange
0: yeah well let's let's take let's take a little bit of a step back um assuming that 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 probably a decent percentage of our listeners aren't as deeply in the weeds on these issues as, as all of us or may have heard some of this. Um, so I wanted to take a little bit of a step back. And and so just even even let's start with just the concept of like first sale rights. And I know, Aaron, you mentioned that and in, in, in what you were saying. But this is something that I think, like a lot of people don't even quite understand, right? You know, the, this idea that when you buy, you know, when you buy a book, you're allowed to resell it, even though there's, you know, copyright-covered content within the book. But you have something called first sale rights, which allows you to resell the, the the sort of physical product that you have with you know with those words. That's why there's used bookstores exist, um, or or why you know you can go on eBay or Amazon or whatever and, and sell used books. But you don't have that ability to do that in, in digital. Now, there are a couple of companies that have tried, right? Um, and so do you want to just sort of run with that a little bit in terms of you know, what, what happens when you don't have those, those digital first sale rights? Sure.
1: So this idea of the first sale doctrine, that's, that's the language that we use in copyright law. Um, More broadly in IP law generally, and I think Jason and I prefer to use this language, we talk about exhaustion. And Mm -hmm. exhaustion is this basic principle that once an IP rights holder sells you a, a copy of a copyrighted work or they sell you an embodiment of a patented invention or they sell you a trademarked good, their ability to control and restrict what you do with the thing that you buy is limited. Some of the exclusive rights that IP rights holders enjoy are exhausted in the sense that they just no longer apply to you or to that particular item. And that's a really crucial limitation on intellectual property rights. And I think it's one that we've argued is necessary in order for IP rights to be consistent with personal property rights. The idea that I own the things that I buy. The the physical objects uh, that I surround myself with uh, are things that I control. Um, And one of the problems as we've moved into a kind of more digital economy is that those rights historically have been premised on the existence of some physical object that the consumer owns. It's the physical book, it's the CD, it's the, you know, patented um, ink cartridge, for example, uh, that the consumer owns, and that was sort of the, the physical instantiation of their property interests. The problem that we're dealing with now is what happens when the goods that we're buying are no longer physical? Um, when they are uh, perhaps digital downloads, which of course exist in some physical form on your hard drive or your memory device, uh, but not a kind of um, separately transferable physical medium. Or maybe they're uh, copies in the cloud uh, that you don't even have physical access to in the first place. How do we translate that notion of ownership and control into the digital space and the answer from copyright holders and so far um, we have limited a limited record here but so far the answer from US courts at least is to say well we just don't we don't extend those rights into the digital space the digital space is governed by license agreements rather than the rules of personal property and we're starting to see that same mentality creep into the physical goods that we buy too because they might say as John Deere has said as you know General Motors has said yeah you might own the physical object the car or the tractor but the code that makes it operate that doesn't belong to you right you don't own that and so in some sense the value of that object is uh, in this sort of less obviously physical component And that that introduces real problems. It means that consumers are subject to limitations on whether they can resell uh, the things that they buy, whether they can repair the objects that they own, um, you know, whether they have control over the use of uh, the things that they buy. So, you know, just... um, Recently, the the Supreme Court heard oral argument, in this case, Impression Products versus Lexmark, that tests the same theory applied in the patent context rather than in the the copyright context. And Lexmark's Mm -hmm. argument is, look, we own a patent, and that patent allows us to restrict what use you can make of our, uh, our printer cartridges. And if we tell you that even though you bought the printer cartridge, you're not allowed to refill it and you're not allowed to transfer it, those are rules that you have to abide by not as a matter of a contract but as a matter of our property interest as they would put it in their patented article so it's it's really this loss of consumer autonomy that I think is is kind of the ultimate concern that that um, is is driving the conversation
0: yeah there's I mean to me one of the funny things about this this whole debate is you know when you talk to 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 people who are sort of really you know, I guess the true believers in the in the copyright space, um, you know, they always like to refer to it, uh, the, or there's a group of them at least who, who really like to refer to to copyright in in the property rights realm, right? And then they talk about like this is about property rights and how important property rights are and everything like that. And there's there's the reverse argument, which is what you guys are sort of implicitly making, which is that like when you talk about copyright as as a property right. You're, you're ignoring the fact that then you're limiting the property rights of the people who are purchasing and or licensing, depending on what terminology you decide to use there. Um, you know, you're putting this weird restriction on, on what people you know, historically thought of as their own property rights. And and I, I think it's I think it's really interesting in a way that that you guys are effectively flipping that argument and and making that point uh, whether you know whether you mean to or not just the, you know if you're going to make the property rights argument about copyright like let's really look at what does that mean across the board, including for the the you know the consumers or the the end purchasers.
2: Yeah, and I think um, I mean part of the tension that I think has always been there. Uh, historically for hundreds of years has been this tension between you know what is called intellectual property and personal property and the exhaustion principle has been the rule that mediated between those tensions and it simply said as Aaron pointed out that once you're sold you're done as an intellectual property owner and the copy you sold is gone and then it is a personal property and it worked, you know as Justice Breyer said in the oral argument this week in the Luxmark case for 300 years pretty well and now it's getting extremely complicated and that's that's part of the tension that you know is unraveling here and that's probably you know what we're trying to address in the book
1: property does have this incredible rhetorical force as an argument it's an argument that resonates with courts it's absolutely an argument that resonates with policymakers uh... and in some sense it's an argument that that resonates with the public at large and in a fairly self-conscious way I think what we were trying to do at least in part with this book was to say exactly uh, Mike the point that, that you just made that the property rhetoric works in both directions and in fact the property picture is much more complicated than just saying well we have to respect the rights of intellectual property holders because that comes at a cost and in part. At least in some circumstances, that cost is telling all of us, uh, all of the, the the consumers in the world, what they can and can't do with the things that they believe they own, that they believe that they've purchased. Um, and you know, making that point, I think, is is a way of leveling the rhetorical playing field in a way so that we can focus on uh, the uh, policy arguments and economic arguments that I think ultimately are, uh, you know, crucial to resolving these sorts of questions.
0: Yeah. I think one of the, I find it funny how even like the, the sort of, you know, copyright, um, what I, what I tend to refer to as sort of the legacy copyright industries, you know, they sort of run into this issue themselves in their own way. And, you know, the, the, I I've referred to it as, um, like the Schrodinger's download where (laughs) when they were, when they were doing, you know, licensing, um, you know, uh, there were a whole bunch of lawsuits a few years back, um, about mainly about iTunes, um, And it probably carried over to some of the streaming services, which, you know, most of the recording contracts from the pre-digital days had different terms for sales and licensing. And so, you know, in those days, sales were, you know, they're talking about album sales, CDs, and, you know, possibly records or tapes. And licensing was always for like, you know, someone uses your song in a commercial. And the contracts were much better for artists on the licensing side. So if it was licensing, I think they usually would get like 50% of the revenue. And, but if it was a sale, they would get like 10 or 15% of the revenue. And then along comes iTunes. And there were questions about, is that, are we just licensing or are we selling? And of course the labels wanted it to be considered a sale for the sake of the you know the revenue split where the artist wanted it to be a license and you know but they would go back and forth and at other times of course you know they were arguing um, you know at the same time that they might argue that it's a sale then if somebody on the flip side argues well if it's a sale and I own this then I should be able to resell the file that I you know bought off of iTunes or whatever and they're saying no 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 that's just a license and so they would you know they they started to use the terminology interchangeably just whenever it would benefit them most Um, Rather than taking any sort of, you know, ideologically consistent position. I thought that was kind of a a funny situation that that came about because of all this.
1: Yeah. So, you know, as a as a person who, um, you know, is a a law professor and teaches uh, law students how to be good lawyers. Um, I'm, I'm always reminding my students of the importance of arguing in the alternative, right? Um, right. You know, have, have a sort of cascading series of arguments that get you the result that you need. And so from that perspective, um, I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to what the uh, record <laughs> labels are doing. Um, but there is a, a deep inconsistency in uh, using uh, one framing of this transaction as you're interfacing with consumers and using uh, its polar opposite when you're interfacing uh, with artists, right? With the people who are actually supposed to be uh, being uh, paid by the copyright system. Um, It's, it's not particularly surprising, but I I share your uh, sense of uh, (laughs) frustration and and bemusement with that, uh, that argument.
0: Yeah. Um, So, so, I mean, let's, we mentioned already, you know, how it, this starts to move over into the physical realm. I mean, obviously we have things with, you know, whether or not you can unlock your phone. And, and we've mentioned the, the John Deere and the, um, you know, the automobile stuff. Um, and, you know, my sense at least is that, you know, this is becoming more and more prevalent. And, and as I said earlier, like, I think part of that is on purpose, where the, the makers of physical goods are, are recognizing that they can, they can um, you know, have more control and, and potentially extract additional revenue streams by making pieces of, of their physical uh, goods uh, digital in a way that they can they can retain some sort of control, whether it's to, you know, do like the equivalent of like in-app purchases, you know, additional purchases or service revenue down the road. Um, do you have a sense that, that, do you think that's going to continue and sort of accelerate? Is that... And and was that a, a big part of the concern in, in sort of writing this?
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, you know, I think the iPhone jailbreak story was sort of the beginning of that for us. And we sort of, you know, try to identify it as the origin story for the Internet of Things You Don't Own kind of chapter that we wrote. Um, but I think you're seeing this now proliferate across all of these network device uh, Internet of Things kinds of Um, ecosystems, but also it's this sort of interesting um, uh, evolution of consumer protection as well, Uh, and the question of whether consumer protection will be able to survive the Internet of Things, right? We've seen this across all kinds of landscapes for Internet of Things, from privacy to security, but this idea that you don't own the thing you bought um, because the company still is controlling it, they're providing the support for it, you're its dependent on um, cloud servers, et cetera, is really technologically changing our relationship to the things we buy. And then if the legal rules also change, then it really puts us in a kind of predicament. I mean one of the examples that, you know, I use to sort of illustrate this sometimes is, you know, if we think that security is a problem for the Internet of Things and that, you know, there are problems where botnets can take over or webcams and things, but we don't own our own webcams. So we can't actually even update them if we wanted to. It's dependent on the company right. to update the things that we bought. And they're insecure and they're in our own homes. You know, how did we get here is a question I think we need to ask.
1: And it's it's not just the things that are in our homes. Um, you know, as we point out uh, in the book, increasingly... You know, medical devices and medical implants, things that are actually part of our bodies, (laughs) things that keep us alive, um, run on code that, um, you know, until very recently uh, wasn't open to independent security testing that required going out uh, and getting an exemption uh, under Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which, uh, for those of you listening who aren't familiar with that, is Uh, a provision uh, in the Copyright Act uh, that uh, forbids uh, individuals from bypassing or circumventing or removing essentially the digital locks, the DRM, uh, that restricts access to copyrighted works including copyrighted code. So if you want to understand how your pacemaker works and you want to make sure uh, that you know, it is not creating some health risk for you, assuming you have the, the technical expertise, you weren't able to do that. Or, let's say you wanted to understand uh, the software that makes your vehicle work. In particular, let's say you wanted to understand the software um, that controlled the emission system on your diesel Volkswagen, right? That's something that copyright holders were able to stop you from doing, right? and. Um, the reasons for wanting to stop you from accessing that code have nothing to do with copyright infringement. Nobody is right. out there, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, posting Volkswagen's emissions code on BitTorrent, you know, to uh, you know, because it's it's the it's the new it's the new hit code of the month. <laughs> right. um, it's because you know they have an interest in, in keeping it secret. In that case, because they were up to something quite nefarious.
0: Yeah, I mean the the thing that that always strikes me about it is like how far away from from you know what most people think of quite reasonably copyright policy should be about that that all of these things are actually impacted by this. Um, it's it's fairly crazy.
1: So you know we find uh, I don't know if Jason would would agree with this, but at least in my experience, you know, talking to people who work in and represent traditional copyright interests, you know, the sort of uh, big movie stu- studios, record labels, book publishers of the world. Um, I think they are beginning uh, to become quite frustrated with these stories themselves. You know, they pushed really hard uh, for Section 1201 of the DMCA because they thought it was going to you know, safeguard their their products from infringement uh, in the digital marketplace. And Section 1201 has mostly benefited uh, hardware companies. You know, uh, right. technology companies, um, not traditional copyright holders, and all of these examples from John Deere to Lexmark to Volkswagen are painting copyright law uh, in a really negative light. And I, I think there's some sense of frustration that that you know they'd rather not have these kinds of works mucking up the copyright system. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm actually in some ways hopeful that there's an opportunity for reform where, you know, folks like us, academics, uh, consumer advocates, and traditional copyright holders might be able to get together and say, well, well, this is clearly absurd. Why don't we do something about
0: this? <laughs> I, I, I wish that were the case. Uh, from what I've seen, um, those guys, they still keep pushing 1201-like policies elsewhere so whenever we see trade agreements or or copyright reform in other countries uh, over and over again I see that that 1201 style um you know anti-circumvention rules are, are often a sticking point and it's the hollywood guys and and the and the recording industry guys who keep insisting that it needs to be there so i I hope you're right <laughs> I hope that maybe <laughs> they're they're realizing it's time to be a little more open to reform but I, I haven't seen it yet jason I don't know if, if you have any any sense on that.
2: Well, look, I mean, I I do think that copyright's legitimacy is taking a hit here as just like a functioning part of the law. It did when the RAA sued the 16,000 plus people for downloading, including the grandmothers, right? I mean, every time there's kind of an overreach, I think the copyright law's legitimacy takes a hit. And I think this is just, you know, yet another series of examples. And some people, I think, are paying attention um, in the traditional copyright industries. Um, But the other thing is that, you know, the classic... Hollywood versus Silicon Valley narrative gets complicated here, too, as more and more tech companies are kind of, you know, turning this knife and twisting the screw. Yeah. Kind of, you know. And so one of the examples that uh, Aaron and I wrote about in an op-ed recently was Tesla. Now, this isn't necessarily legal yet, but in the new versions of the Tesla, I think it's Model S and X, the autonomous mode, There's a little FAQ on the website that says, you know, you will be permitted to use this mode and allow your car to drive around with friends and family, but you won't be able to commercialize it with ride-sharing services like, you know, Uber and Lyft, Um, but you will be able to do that with the forthcoming Tesla network, right? So here's a a clearly anti-competitive move from some perspectives uh, of a technology company, and maybe you say, well, you know, the trade-offs will be eventually worth it or not or whatever, but... It's it's a move by tech companies to use copyright to make this kind of turn. And if there's a backlash, then I think the traditional copyright industries have to be concerned that that backlash is going to push copyright law even further outside the realm of what people think is reasonable.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting example. And and I mean, I guess a similar one is even like like Tesla, which I hadn't even realized this, but I was just reading that, you know, when they were selling the, the sort of lower end model of the S, with, with a smaller battery, they were actually outfitting it with the larger battery. And it was a software limitation that, that stopped the battery from, from, I guess, fully charging or whatever. And so you could pay to sort of upgrade your car and get a longer range. And, and that raises questions about like, well, what if, you know, what if someone wanted to hack their car? Um, You know, and again, it's like, well, do you own that car or do you not actually own that car? And of course, you know, you know, hacking cars, there's there's a long tradition of of people, you know, modifying their cars in some ways and, and souping it up or whatever. And and here you could actually run into a copyright issue if you modified your car to actually use the battery that came in the car that you thought you bought.
2: Yeah. And this is one of those things. And Aaron actually has done a study with a colleague of ours, Chris Huffnagel, about this. Uh, aspect of it too. One of the benefits of exhaustion and ownership was the simplicity of the transaction, right? The the sort of colloquial, you bought it, you own it. It it works because it is like, I gave you my money, you gave me the thing. And these complex relationships, there's a potential deceptive element to it, right? I mean, I don't know the details of this Tesla situation, but you know, you could argue, wow, that's kind of deceiving me into believing I have a smaller battery than I actually do. And you know, I paid this money and I thought I was getting everything in the car, but you're actually not giving me everything in the car. You're restricting me in these ways. And is that, you know, fair in the way you marketed it? So I think there are new issues arising around consumer protection in the marketing of products that if we don't truly own them, what are we paying for?
1: Yeah, so I'd be happy to talk a bit about about the the study that Chris and I did of digital media. But first, just to kind of address this, uh, this broader point about, you know, what what we refer to as information costs, right? The, the idea that, you know, to participate in the market, you've got to gather information about what sort of transaction you're talking about. Um, you know, am I buying a car or am I leasing a car? Uh, am I buying a movie or am I renting a movie? In a world that's sort of defined by these well-established, very clear kinds of personal property transactions, gifts, purchases, uh, you know, leases, lending, those are all categories that we're all very familiar with that are fairly clearly and simply defined. One of the things we're worried about is that once we move into a world where a manufacturer or a patent holder or a copyright holder gets to dream up whatever complicated bundle of rights best suits their interests, right? A bundle of rights that says, I'll sell you a car for $80,000, but you're only allowed to use it in conjunction with this list of apps and not that list of apps, or a car maker that says, we'll sell you a car, but you're only allowed to repair it in these places, not those places, or you own the car, but you're only allowed to drive it on like alternating Wednesdays and Fridays. (laughs) Right. Now we all have to do a very expensive investigation to figure out what the heck is it we're paying for. Right. Um, and that imposes like really broad costs on the economy as a whole, not just on consumers. Even if you're a person uh, who insists, well, all I'm ever gonna do is out and out buy something. Well, you still have to double check to make sure that's what you're actually getting. So we're introducing all this complexity and we're just not convinced that the upsides are significant enough to justify it. People will say, "Well, look, if we allow these kinds of you know idiosyncratic bundles of rights to be created, you know we can engage in price discrimination. And somebody who right. wants the expensive battery can get it, and somebody who only wants the you know the less expensive smaller battery can pay for that. And doesn't that work out better for everyone?" And frankly, I'm, I'm skeptical of the idea that that price discrimination is in fact in the long run good for consumers the the goal of price discrimination is to eliminate consumer surplus it's to charge you exactly the maximum that you are willing to pay and not a penny less right so in a world of perfect price discrimination um there's like there's no such thing as a good deal anymore Um, and and i think you know we're heading in uh in that direction and you know that That worries me. So I'm I'm skeptical of, uh, of, of the value of coming up with these kinds of new transactional forms.
0: Right. But that is, I mean, that is the other side, right? The other side of the argument is that and you know, when you can do that, you can they can they can come up with sorts of, all sorts of new and uh, business models that they think, you know, so like if you could only buy a car that can drive on, you know, Tuesday and Wednesday or whatever, um, you know, you could charge a lot less for that. And therefore, the person who only needs to drive on Tuesday and Wednesday suddenly could afford a nicer car because they're just going to drive it on, on those days, right?
1: Right. And, 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 and you know, our, our position is not that you shouldn't be able to come come up with those kinds of deals, and this gets back to the study that that Chris Hofnagel and I did, our position is you can't call that a sale. You can't tell somebody (laughs) you're selling them a car when it has that many strings attached to it, right? If you want to have some car subscription service, and, you know, car companies are doing this now, right? You pay them a flat fee, and it's like, you can drive any Cadillac you want. Pick a new (laughs) Cadillac every day of the week and drive it around, right? That's great, but you know that you don't own those cars, Right?
0: Right, so right, right.
1: this study that Chris and I did um, we we created a sort of fictitious uh, online uh, shopping site that, in many ways kind of replicates you know what you'd find at you know iTunes or uh, Amazon, and we used the standard buy now button that consumers encounter on a range of digital goods, and we asked people what rights they thought they were acquiring when they click that buy now button and it turns out people believe uh, that they're acquiring often the same sorts of rights that you'd get in a physical good when it comes to digital good. So they think they have the right to lend it or give it away uh, or even resell it. And we compared that to uh, what we what we refer to as a short notice, which is like a, a list of bullet points. Rather than saying buy now, uh, the bullet points tell you, you may engage in these behaviors, you may not engage in this other list of behaviors. And we compared people's responses and it turns out that um, if you're honest with consumers, they have a better understanding of these transactions. So that, that, that's, that's sort of when Jason referenced this idea of deception. We think that using the familiar language of physical world purchases is actually kind of leading consumers astray in, in a way that sets up a, a set of uh, false expectations.
0: So, so, what's the solution to all of this? I mean, if, if, it's, if it's just a deception issue, is that like an FTC issue? If, you know, if, do we fix copyright law? What, all, all of the above? You know, is there something totally different?
2: Well, I'm sure we can get Congress to come together on this issue. <laughs> I'm absolutely positive that they're in a perfect place to kind of find consensus.
1: Yeah. Um, as, soon yeah as, like I, as soon as they're done with healthcare, this is next on the agenda. Well, one, right? and then
2: immigration, but anyway. Uh, no, I mean like I think what's interesting about this, is that, you know, and there are ways to approach different solutions And we kind of write about in the final chapter of the book based on a kind of constellation of ideas around what ownership really gives you when like, you know, and can we replicate that if we don't call it ownership, can we call it something else in the digital age? But I also think that you're seeing already a kind of Um, a set of movements already so there's a sort of right to repair movement that's going on where you see legislation i think in nebraska and there was an agreement that came out of the one in massachusetts where like eight
1: eight states now i think where bills are currently pending yeah
2: and and I think that's real progress for addressing some of the issues, right? And then we have the mm-hmm. copyright office proceedings where a number of these exemptions have been granted on a number of these kinds of devices. Not everything, but like some of them that have been making the case for why copyright should not control here. You've seen some pushback in some courts around this attempt to kind of call everything a license. You know, it's a muddled set of case law. We can clarify that. Um, another place you're seeing this is in the Redigi case, which is on appeal to the Second Circuit right now, which was an attempt to create a platform for people to resell their iTunes songs that they had bought. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are a number of different places that this is where it's being try it's they're trying to come up with solutions in a number of different areas and forums. But I don't know there'll be a panacea, right? I don't know there'll be, like, the bill that says okay or the court decision that says okay and takes care of all of this. But I do think you're seeing some efforts to try to address the concerns in different spaces in the sort of tech policy and law world.
1: I do think that's right. I don't think there's any single solution because, the, you know, the problem is a really multifaceted one that has, has to do uh, with copyright law that has to do with our kind of uh, modern perverted version of contract law, uh, that has to do with the patent system, that has to do with, uh, with section 1201 of the DMCA. And, you know, I think that the, the solution is necessarily going to be kind of a piecemeal one. I, I do think that to the extent we're worried about patent holders being able to exert this kind of control, this argument uh in impression products versus lexmark that just happened at the supreme court is going to tell us a lot uh, about whether this mentality that you get to exert <clears throat> excuse me you get to exert control uh over a, a product after you sold it to someone that's going to tell us a lot um, and right. um you know it, that that is uh i think going to be a really crucial next step in this conversation
0: yeah and I know that there there was a bill I think it's been introduced a couple of times that tries to address some of this. It's the the Yoda bill. It's like you own Devices Act or something like that, right. Um, and that tries to address like a small part of this too, as well, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's an important step in the right direction, right? So that's legislation that uh, that Texas Congressman Blake Farenthold has introduced, uh, I think, three times now, and you know, it's it's a bill that we talk about in the book that we think is really uh, important, but it you know it can't offer a solution to the whole set of problems um, in right. the twelve oh one space. Frankly, you know, if, if it were up to me. Um, we just repeal Section 1201, and I think that would take us a long way towards a, a solution here. That's not going to happen anytime soon, right? But I do think we should have uh, a provision in Section 1201 that says if you own a device, uh, you own the code that is contained within that device, and by virtue of owning that copy of the code, you're allowed to circumvent those protection measures, um, right. and. At, when I mentioned the idea that there's a possibility that traditional copyright holders might be open to some form of DMCA reform, um, this might be uh, potentially, and I, I know they'll have concerns about the security of, 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 of content on those <laughs> they, devices. They
0: will definitely have concerns. About. Um, but, you know,
1: if it if it takes these stories about coffee makers and printers uh, and Barbie dolls and tractors out of the headlines, um, you know if they're listening my advice is maybe maybe take those proposals seriously.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Um anyway so to to close this out I I, I did want to I know you guys had had mentioned you ran into an issue that I thought would be a good story to sort of finish this up on with uh, Apple and iBooks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I thought I thought our listeners might be interested if if one of you wants to sort of summarize what happened there.
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm happy to to talk about that. Um so, you know, when the book was about to come out, our publisher, MIT Press, submitted the book to, you know, all the usual platforms and, you know, um, Jason and I, as first-time book authors, were like eagerly checking uh, every day to see when our book was going to be out. And um, I took a look at uh, the iBooks store and uh, the book uh, was missing. It had been uh, removed. It was there for pre-order for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it, then it disappeared from the store. And in and, and talking to our publisher, we, we sort of found out why. And the reason that the book had been removed uh, from the iBook store was because Apple reviewed the content of the book before it went on sale and determined that we had used their trademark term iBook in a way uh, that Apple objected to. So in a f- two or three passages in the book, we referred uh, to ebooks sold by Apple on its iBook store as iBooks, using them as a noun. And Apple claimed that that was a violation of their trademark in the iBook store. Um, their registered trademark for the, the, the platform on which they sell these eBooks. And, you know, I, uh, aside from writing books about digital ownership, I also, I teach <laughs> trademark law in my spare time <laughs> and realize that this assertion was, was just utter nonsense, right? right. Um, we were using the term to refer explicitly to Apple's products, right? We were not creating consumer confusion about who was in the iBooks business. But Apple essentially has this document that, um, you know, it, it's it's essentially a style guide for the use of right. Apple's trademarks. It's them saying, these are the ways we we like to use our terms to kind of maximize brand value. And if Apple wants to have a document like that, well, you know, good, good for them. Um, right,
0: more power to them. Right,
1: I don't have to, you know, we don't have to write our book in compliance with, you know, Right, Apple Style Guide, but they they refused to carry the book unless we made some changes, um, <laughs> and and really like linguistically awkward changes. So we had to start <laughs> saying things like "ebook sold by the iBook Store from Apple." Um, you know, made the sentences kind of clunky. But you know, this is a huge platform for digital books, and right. you know, even though we always tell people buy the hard copy. Um, right. for, for obvious reasons, um, if the book's not available to the millions of readers who use Apple's service, then that makes it a lot harder to get our message out there. It also, and I think this is the more important point than you know what happened to to you know us us poor authors here. Um, it tells us something really important about the kind of power that these yeah. distribution platforms have. That you know Apple. Gets to decide which books are for sale on its store and art, and you know that's true, of course, and it should be true for traditional bookstores. And I think it should probably be true for Apple too. Um, you know, there's a there's a kind of First Amendment interest in curating your store in the way that you see fit, and sure. I, I'm absolutely in favor of that. But um, we thought it was important for there to be some degree of transparency and accountability, so we wrote about it uh and it you know it it got a little bit of uh, uh attention i don't know how many extra books it sold that was kind of my hope but
0: <laughs> yeah no i just thought it was sort of an interesting point in, in the fact that like yeah you suddenly have this store that has the ability to block you from from selling it unless you actually change the text of your book um and and you know, not even getting at the the whole you know difference between digital and, and physical and you know i can't imagine like you know the traditional like Barnes and Noble going through a book and, and and refusing to sell a book because it used the trademark wrong somewhere, you know? Um, I, I thought that was sort of a, a, an amusing situation. But anyways, um, thank you guys, both of you for, for for well, one, for writing the book and, and secondly, for, for joining us today. Um, I'm sure uh, our listeners enjoyed it as well. Um, if you haven't read the book, go check it out. Once again, it's called The End of Ownership. Um, and uh, thanks to both uh, Aaron and Jason for for joining us and thanks to everyone who's listening.
2: Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. Great.
0: And uh, we'll be back next week with another someone up the